This is Kate Swoboda, creator of YourCourageousLife.com, director of the Courageous Living Coach Certification at TeamCLCC.com, and author of the book, The Courage Habit, which is available at booksellers and at Amazon. The Your Courageous Life podcast is all about going after what you want and creating and living a more courageous, emotionally resilient life. Might drop a couple of F-bombs, so maybe don't listen with your kids in the backseat of the car. And here we go with today's episode. Hey, hey, y'all. Here we are. My last podcast episode was me filling everybody in a little bit on where I've been and what I've been up to. It's been a big move to come out of California and move to Texas amid a pandemic, all kinds of different things going on. And in that episode, I talked about process work or what I call process work. And I talked about it as a really essential tool. And in this episode, I'm going to talk a little bit more in or in more detail about that. Specifically, I'll be talking about how you process your experience. I know that there was a time when I didn't think of myself as processing through experiences. I just thought of myself as like, I'm trying to do life and it's just coming at me. So this is what used to happen. Actually, it was, it would feel a little bit like this. I'd wake up in the morning and I'd feel it. That was how I thought of it as an it. The it was sadness, anger, or anxiety. And I would think, oh no, not again. Because in my experience, when the it came over me, I was just powerless. I would be reduced to tears or I'd see only the things that were wrong and I'd feel this raging anger or I would have to fight against thinking about all the anxiety invoking things that could not be controlled in this world. And once I felt it, I felt like I was at its mercy until somehow it would just depart as mysteriously as it seemed to come. The feelings would just kind of slide up into my life. And the paradox, by the way, was that they often followed some kind of happy event in my life, such as finally reaching the end of a big project and feeling proud or getting really, really great news. Like there would be a kind of high from the, the finishing of the project or the great news, followed by a very deep valley. And that made no damned sense to me until it did, because when Brene Brown started talking about how we cannot selectively shut down emotion, how clamping down on shame or fear or anger or anything else would also mean clamping down on joy. That's when I understood it in the inverse. That was why following the heels of some happiness, the gates were basically open now for the other feelings too. If you open the gates, you're going to get them all. And unfortunately, understanding that the two were connected did not necessarily mean that I knew how to cope any better. I saw the connection. I just didn't quite know what to do with the connection in a practical sense in my day-to-day life. So for a long time, I assumed that this it that washed over me, these emotions that took over were just a matter of genetics, since there are threads of depression that run through my extended family. And the science seemed to say that it was all just a biochemical imbalance, a mishmash of serotonin and norepinephrine that's out of whack. Nothing to be done, I assumed at the time, except the tried and true standards of therapy and antidepressants and hope that those 
really, I thought of them as kind of like magic pills and magic therapists could fix me. And then what shifted was that through really a series of small happy accidents, I found my way into a Zen Buddhist temple, a Zendo, one day. And the quiet was unlike anything I'd ever known. And I sat in the Zendo and followed the basic instructions of just watching my breath. And I wasn't very proficient at it by any means, but something happened during those first sessions. And what happened was I felt good. And what's more is I felt good in a way that I previously had only ever felt good when some good event had happened to me. So in other words, I had gone through my whole life only feeling good when good things were happening to me. And now for the first time in my life in that Zendo, I had sat down to breathe and cultivated the feeling of good in my body. And until I began meditating, I hadn't known that I could do that before. Think about that for yourself. Do you know how to sit down and cultivate the feeling of good? regardless of the crappy experiences going on around you. Because I think most of us have externalized every feeling. And someone at the Zendo, by the way, had to explain to me what externalizing feelings even meant. So I'll explain it here. In essence, it was this. If a bad thing happens something outside of you, some accident, some person's unkind remark or not getting the job you want, then you feel bad. And if a good thing happens, then you feel good. It's externalizing the emotions. The feelings come based on the external events, the externalized events and people and circumstances. When you are stuck in that, always dictate how you feel. And later, my coach, Matthew Marzell, would talk about this sort of cycle as giving away your power. And if your initial response to the idea, I feel bad when bad things happen and good when good things happen is something like, well, duh, Kate, doesn't everyone feel bad when bad things happen? Are you suggesting we become robots? Then think on this just a little bit more. Maybe even pause the podcast if you need to, because the concept here is not that you shouldn't feel bad when bad things happen. It's okay to feel bad when bad things happen. I think it's healthy to feel bad when bad things happen. What isn't helpful, what I'm really trying to say here is it's it's not helpful when your entire life is a ping pong between the bad and the good, the bad and the good, the bad and the good. And the bad and the good are always dictated by external events. What isn't helpful is the automatic definition of things as bad or good when we can't know the final outcome. So like rushing to define, oh, this is all bad. Nothing good will come of this when we can't know the final outcome. For instance, this is always my favorite example. Maybe the breakup you're going through is bad. It feels bad. I don't want you to deny that, but it will lead to the love of your life. What isn't helpful is when you yourself have no control over shifting the bad feelings or when you're carried away with the good to such a degree that you are just in this constant polarization between one or the other, the binary, without the ability 
to live in the nuances or the spaces between the bad and the good. That's what people are getting at here. That's what I'm getting at here. That ability to live in the nuances between the bad and the good. The nuance that we all live in and that we routinely reject is that good and bad are inherent possibilities at all times. And good and bad are often all about how we define the situation. Not always. I am not saying carte blanche that there are certain things we could not objectively say are bad or are good. Of course. I'm saying though that how we frame it can often tilt it in one direction or the other. The nuance is that, to continue with the breakup example, breakups are truly painful and hard and there is grief and there is also opportunity and possibility. So what I began to learn through Buddhism was the encouragement to be with all of it. Because when you are practicing sitting on your zafu, that's the name for the meditation cushion, Buddhism would be impossible if not for the funny names, right? Zafu, which just sounds like a zany little, little pillow or something. So you sit on your zafu and you breathe with your contentment. And that's usually a pretty good meditation session. That's how we define it anyway. But then you get to another meditation session and you're breathing with your boredom. And when you don't give up and you finish the meditation session anyway, you've learned a little bit more about how to be with all of it. And then you have a meditation session where you're being with your happiness. And those are a lot easier or so we define them. And then we have the ones where you're full of rage or sadness and you just keep coming back to your breath and that trains you in how to be with all of it. Now, at first in this story of how I learned to process my experiences instead of just letting life come at me, at first I followed a pattern that I would later learn is incredibly common for new meditators in that I was so blissed out by my early meditation experiences of stillness and quiet that when more experienced practitioners talked about needing to sit with frustration or sadness or other, as they're called, hot feelings, I didn't get it. I was like, it feels so good to meditate. Meditation is the best. Like, how did anyone feel bad on the cushion? I thought I had chosen this entirely new life path, one in which I now had the power to repel any bad feelings with the power of an in-breath and an out-breath. Booyah. There we go. I'm on it. Hell yeah. Let's do it. Meditation, baby. That was me (laughs) at first. It's very common, like I said. And for a while, I floated on those great new meditation feelings, really, I think, in much the same way that Someone in their earliest weeks of falling in love seems not to mind, you know, traffic jams or unexpected tax bills. And then, of course, that stopped. And I started to see what people had been talking about. Not every meditation session was bliss. Many of them felt antsy or edgy or boring or annoying. And there were others where I felt calmer before I sat down and somehow way more ragey once my ass was on the zafu. And when that happened, I'd think, okay, so, so this is what people talk about with not always feeling 
great about meditation. Okay, so what I need to do is I just need to meditate harder. Hopefully you're laughing with me. Ah, yes, the survival strategies of a type A perfectionist. Didn't get it perfect the first time or the 20 gazillionth. Don't give up, double down, go harder. Your survival depends on it. That is the pattern. I also responded to those feelings by reading up on Buddhism and trying to learn more about it. And that's a good thing. But of course, in the paradigm I was in, my grasping for that meditative piece, it was all about how do I get back to that meditative piece? And if I couldn't experience it directly, I was like, all right, I'm going to study it. I'm going to read the books. I'm going to study like it's a test for school. And that's how I'm going to get back to that meditative piece. And that led to a very long stretch where I basically dogmatically applied my Buddhism, thinking the end goal was to be calm and relaxed at all times. And if I was failing in that endeavor, then I needed to do it better or more. Um, So in essence, abandoning the idea of being with all of it, and in essence, taking my conditioning about externalizing emotions and then applying them to meditation. That's a good session. That's a bad session. I've defined it. It's good if I feel good. It's bad if I feel bad. I've defined it that way. And then I met Matthew, (laughs) my coach, counselor, guru, man. That's my jokey name for him. And he started talking to me about actually proactively processing out emotions. So that's where I'm getting with this process your experience bit here. So processing out emotions is pretty straightforward. You cry when you need to get out some sad. You scream when you need to get out some angry. And always you laugh because humans need to laugh. So when the it comes over you, in other words, whether you think it's clinical or whether you think it's COVID-induced, whatever it is, COVID-induced as in a low mood because of what's going on in the general world with COVID. In other words, you harness it and ride it and process through it instead of just trying to breathe it away or resist it or slap a happy affirmation on it or distract yourself or numb out with TV or numb out with chemicals. So in essence, processing your experience proactively so that you can process through it instead of have it just sit there until it finally goes away which is, again, as I described at the top of this episode, how life felt for a really long time for me. It looks like this. If you feel the impulse to cry, if you keep feeling that teary feeling, you find a room and you sit down and you just cry. And you do it even if your inner critic, because it will, tells you that you're a baby for doing it. Or even if you feel snot-nosed and vulnerable and stupid, you cry raising my hand first here to say I have felt all of those things about this practice. You just cry. Or maybe you haven't been feeling sad so much during this COVID time. Maybe you're feeling angry. Like you feel that that knife's edge of anger. The knife's edge, like it could just completely go ballistic. Or the tightness in your chest or throat or frustrations are rising. You're trying to hold back your words, you know, at any minute you're going to tell that fucker where they can go fuckity fuck the fuck off instead of holding yourself back like someone who is trying desperately not to explode 
you do it. You explode, except you don't explode onto other people. You explode by finding some space to yourself, at which point you start punching a pillow or screaming into a towel or stomping your feet with fury. And I am aware that those practices sound nutty. My critic likes to remind me that of all the time, and yet they are the most emotionally mature, (laughs) sane, healthy practices imaginable. And I would say, too, that if they sound just like, there's no way I'm doing that, pause and consider your conditioning around so-called negative emotion. Pause and consider the ways in which you have been trained to pathologize negative emotion, to see sadness as a symptom of weakness, to see anger as a symptom of somebody who just needs to get control of themselves, to see emotions in general as being childish. What if they're not? What if we are meant to feel these things, but we are meant to become better adults in terms of how we process what we feel? What if we're not meant to stop feeling these things when we're no longer kids? Just some food for thought. Today, I marry the two practices, really. The meditation piece, I find meditating, trying to be with all of it, being with my in-breath and my out-breath to be a very present, enlivening practice. It slows me down. It brings me to the authentic core of my experience. It keeps me from trying to run from the experience. keeps me from being the ping-pong ball, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And if what I describe in that calls to you, then see it as your call to the cushion. But there's another piece that I think actually goes hand in hand with the meditation, and it is to process your experience through letting out sadness and anger and anxiety before they can become pent up. That is also a way of being with all of it. I find that if I avoid crying, I end up feeling depressed and that feeling, the it feeling, will just hang over me sometimes for weeks. I've had it hang over me for months at a time. And if I just go ahead and find a good 10 minutes to cry it out, afterwards, I reconnect with clear thinking. I mean, haven't you had those cries before where it just felt like too much and you just had like a gut-wrenching soul searching down to the core cry and then you wipe your face and you feel tired but also strangely like okay kind of relieved like okay all right I don't know what's coming next but I'm gonna be okay or think about anger you know if I take if I avoid taking ownership of my anger which is so often what we do when we push it away I can end up feeling low-grade irritated with everything around me all the time. And this, this too, if I don't take ownership and handle it, process it out, it can go on for weeks. It has gone on for months before. But if I just go ahead and find a good 10 minutes to scream into a pillow, I get it out of my system. 10 minutes. 10 minutes of this can save me from weeks, months of feeling awful. 
Do I do it in front of my kid? No. Do I try to teach her that her feelings are okay? Absolutely. Because I don't want to condition her into pathologizing her emotions either. So the big teaching here is you're trying to be with all of it, not make any of it bad or good, just being with all of it combined with the very reality of, okay, my anger is coming up. Is there something I can do to process it out proactively so it doesn't control me? My sadness is coming up. My anxiety is coming up. Is there something I can do proactively so that it doesn't control me? So what I've come to understand was that what I needed but was never taught, and consider if this is true for you too, what I needed but was never taught was a way to process my experience. Think about that. Have you ever been taught, were you ever taught to proactively process your experience? Or were you told to logically subvert it, ignore it, push it away, talk yourself out of it, and that's it? Or were you told that you weren't even allowed to have an experience that you just had to get over it and move on? To process your experience is to say to the thing that has arisen, the feeling, I'll examine you and dance with you and see what's here. Because that's what takes us out of living life as a series of events and circumstances and feelings that just happened to us so that we can learn to harness them as best we can. Now, the hardest part of this entire process, in my opinion, is literally in the deciding. It's in the moment when you decide consciously, consciously, okay, this feeling, this feeling's coming over me, the it, the feelings of sadness or anxiety or overwhelm or anger, this feeling that's coming over me, I'm not just going to push it away, nor will I let it take over. I'm going to actively process it. I'm going to do something with it. And then you process. You process by crying. You process by screaming into a pillow. Again, privacy, good thing to have. Not saying that you have to do it in front of your neighbors. It's a very private practice for me, but it's really, really helpful. I mean, think about this for a minute. Again, the hardest part is deciding to do it because we receive so much conditioning that has us fear emotional release. And we fear it, by the way, with good reason. I am not saying, (laughs) I'm not running you into another binary here. Go ahead with your critical thinking skills. I'm all for it, okay? Many of us were raised in homes where the adults around us didn't express their emotions safely. So yeah, if you have some reservation about this, I don't know about this. Yeah, I get it. You know, maybe you had a parent whose sadness or anxiety would signal a trigger to you that they were about to have a depressive episode, one in which you knew that they were going to be unreliable or would start using substances. Maybe you had a, a parent or a caregiver whose anger was a near constant threat to your emotional or physical safety. So the idea of processing out this stuff might sound really like, whoa. So I don't say to any of you listening to this carte blanche, hey, just go feel those emotions. 
feeling emotions after having no experience or really not feeling like you are very, um, I don't want to use the word competent in the pejorative, but just like competent as in able to really be with those emotions. That's a big thing. That's a big thing. Or if you've had a long stretch of numbing them, I get it. That will feel profoundly unsafe. And I happily recommend that you have work with a therapist for that initial exploration. Or if you have no diagnoses requiring support, work with coaches who are trained in some practices of processing emotion. But whatever you're doing, I would definitely say find some way, your way, doesn't have to be my way, take what you like from this and leave the rest of processing your emotions. This is the meditation practice again of being with yourself. And you start with five minutes. You try to be with yourself and whatever arises for five minutes. Do a guided meditation if you want. I'm a teacher for the Simple Habit app. I've got several meditations on the Simple Habit app. Or just sit and breathe with a timer, stove timer, your phone timer. Five minutes is enough. And what happens is you get comfortable with five minutes and then you stretch to 10. You see that that feeling of the emotion, the being with what is, being with yourself might be difficult, but it's not impossible and you build on that. So I'm sharing this while we are in the earliest months of what is predicted to be a long time dealing with COVID-19. I've had mornings where I wake up and I feel the it that is there, like this heavy sadness in knowing that with quarantine and social distancing, each day is pretty much going to unfold in a similar way as the one before. And I'm going to miss people and I'm going to miss the connection and I'm going to miss the freedom to just walk the world without thinking about the threat of a, a serious airborne illness. I'm sharing this while we're in the midst of finally, finally having a painful awakening around oppression in the United States, especially around race. And I read news headlines about people's rights being taken away or about racial injustice. And even more than I was before, I'm angry. I'm pissed off. But if I let the sadness sit there, it will sink me. That's what I know to be true. If I let the anger just sit there, it will sink me. I no longer believe personally for myself that the feelings I had all those years ago were the result of a biochemical imbalance or a genetic issue, and that's all there was to it. Nothing to be done. Guess I'll be on meds or dealing with this for the rest of my life, or, you know, that felt like those were the only available options. For me, I now believe that I just didn't know how to process my experience. No one ever taught me when I was growing up because no one ever taught the adults around me and no one ever taught them. And now that I have these tools, I use them. Now, I think it's important for me to make sure that I add, I'm not at all saying that clinical diagnoses aren't real. I'm not saying that meds are bad. I'm not, definitely not saying you shouldn't take medications. That's between you and your doctor or therapist. I see therapy, diagnostic tools, medications, 
as a wide range of tools that are hopefully available to everybody listening to this. And there are many tools that are available that contribute to an overall happy, healthy human life. They include sunlight and sleep and laughter and dancing and a sense of purpose. And they can include medication and therapy and diagnoses. And they can include learning how to process your experience, your emotional experience, or reset your mindset or adopt new habits. There's such a wide panoply of emotions. And I love that we have more and more access to those or, or access to an awareness of how much there is out there. So I'm not saying that clinical diagnoses aren't real or medications are bad. I'm saying that for me and for my own experience, I felt like society had told me that the way I felt wasn't supposed to be that way. And it turned out for me, that I was a regular old thinking, feeling human being. And the feelings were sometimes intense. And that actually, once I learned how to navigate them through processing out these things, I didn't get stuck in them. I actually suspect that most people don't expect that they are supposed to have perfect lives. Most people, what they really want is like, okay, if, if difficult things happen, I want to know how to get through them. To me, that's the courage piece. So now here we are, and you get to ask yourself. Go ahead and ask yourself this now. How am I processing this experience? How am I processing what I feel as I confront the reality that there is a pandemic that is affecting the entire world. How am I processing what I feel as I confront the fact that racial and other systemic injustices have always been the backbone of the country I live in? How am I processing how I feel about my life on a regular basis? When I'm asking those questions, the answers that might arrive might be how I'm processing it is I'm making art. How I'm processing is I sing in the shower. How I'm processing is I take these supplements. How I'm processing it is I do push-ups, how I'm processing it is, I cry, how I'm processing it is, I take antidepressants, how I'm processing it is, I call my mother every day. I mean, there are a lot of different ways you might be processing your experience. If anything that came up for you was how I process it is, uh, I just binge on Netflix, you're not processing, you're numbing. How I process it is with a big old glass of rosé. You're not processing, you're numbing. So how are you processing it as in being attuned to it? Being with all that is. Being with all of it. 
And the reason it's so important to have a regular practice of being with all of it is because otherwise, if you're trying to only be with the good stuff and reject categorically the bad stuff, you're not doing any of the training for how to handle the bad stuff. So there are many tools. Process work is just one of them. There's journaling and exercise and cognitive reframing and talk therapy and antidepressants and so many things. We live in a biopsychosocial world and there is so much to appreciate about the biopsychosocial model. The one thing I would encourage is remembering that if you, like me, would feel controlled by your emotions, that their intensity is just one piece of the puzzle. Emotions are intense and we often do need support. And I do want you to find that support. And there are tools that we can utilize to empower ourselves as well. So wherever you are in this today, I send you my love and care. It's really not an easy thing to be a human. And we need one another. And I hope that you're loving and caring and reaching out to other people in any way, shape, or form that you can all day, every day. I'm thinking of you. Many of my prayers in the morning begin with thinking of the people who think no one is thinking of them. I'm thinking of you. We are in this together, even if we can't physically be together. And one of the things that buoys me up and gives me hope is the idea that now we are all seeing how important we really are to one another and how much our presence in one another's lives truly does make a difference. Thank you for listening. All right, that's today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. You know you can continue the work and the fun if you want to. Head on over to yourcourageouslife.com forward slash begin and become a Your Courageous Life subscriber because as soon as you sign up, you get access to an entire library of worksheets and audios and other bonuses. And of course, you'll be receiving more courage in your inbox and who wouldn't love that? You can learn more about the Courageous Living Coach Certification at teamclcc.com. You can get The Courage Habit at your local bookseller, on Amazon, wherever you like. We can even connect on social media. I'm on Facebook at Your Courageous Life. So look for facebook.com forward slash Your Courageous Life. And I'm on Instagram as Kate Courageous. And I'd love to connect with you on Instagram. So here's to you using these courageous tools in your life and creating a real ripple effect of good. And again, thanks so much for listening. I love it that you're here.